Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Good afternoon. It's William and Matthew. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And here is our opening problem. Absolutely everyone hates group projects. Getting everyone to pitch in equally, working with people who have different work ethics, and of course, the dreaded group chat. Now imagine if your group project was not five people, but five million. Would you want everyone to have an equal say in all the decisions decided by a bare majority? Imagine all those C and D students deciding the answer. Does that sound horrific? Well, I think it does. (laughs) Well, then you might hate democracy. In our political climate, you'll probably be labeled either a lover of freedom or an authoritarian tyrant based on your party's definition of quote, democracy. Or you'll hear someone declare, we're not a democracy, but a republic. Some have even suggested ending the Senate because it is, quote, anti-democratic. And so for the question of the show, is democracy the best way to represent its citizens? Yeah, you'll see it as a rallying cry for many viewpoints. It'll be just one of the the talking points. You know, someone will get up there, they'll say, we need to do this, 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 and this. And the reason for that is it'll support our democracy or it'll save our democracy. I am definitely one of those people that I can't, like, I can't stand it. And I've just gotten to a point where I'm just like, okay, there are people that are not going to understand that we are a federal republic. And that means something different than a democracy. And I like just have to throw this out there because it's, you know, it's a platform and people are listening to us that when you say it's a democracy, you're actually demeaning the fact that we're not a democracy, even though we have voting. And sometimes I feel like people don't understand how uniquely special the United States is in how we take in the democratic vote, but also have a Senate that's mapped out towards having two senators for each state versus having a House of Representatives that's actually representative of the number of people in every area of the country. Like, that's just honestly awesome to me. Like, I remember being in government class and thinking, this is actually really cool. Okay, I'm strange. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Who's that weird guy? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, they've lived their entire lives in the United States, right? You don't have a large population of Americans that have lived in multiple places or under multiple governments. That's another thing. Most of us probably have three or four generations of our family that has lived under the exact same way of government, which for a lot of countries in the world, that's not the case. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're just talking about the difference, if you're a British citizen, your grandparents most likely grew up back when they were still the premier empire in the world. Mm -hmm. Right? Because America didn't really ascend until after World War II. So if you, How many countries that they were a certain way, then the Nazis came, then the communists came, then the dictator came, then they threw out the dictator, then they elected a government, then another dictator came, (laughs) and and then that only is the difference between World War II and the 90s. And that describes so many countries out there, you know, what is it, to the east of Britain. Yeah, and I mean, just, you can just look at the African countries, you can look at the just the change in the Chinese Communist Party's approach to governing. You have, I mean, even the what the Koreans, the Vietnamese, 
all these countries have gone through an insane amount of change. And sometimes what happens is because we've had a generally stable system that works kind of the same way for a long period of time, people tend to forget that there's a really important question that citizenry and people in a country or a group of it don't always view how they're going to make decisions the same way. And that's kind of the question, is democracy the best way to represent citizens? There is a bigger question than that as well, that is voting or a democracy or a republic the best way of government? We've just figured it out. You do democracies and that's it. I also have to point out, it's not like we might get used to being under a certain type of leadership, but there are places in the world where their current leadership changes. I was reading about how we're going to pull out of Afghanistan and we're waiting to see what's going to happen to their country's leadership when that happens, you know, as far as who's going to be in power over that country when we pull out or in Hong Kong where China reestablished their reign. So there are countries in the world today where the type of leadership that they're having is being completely ruined, destroyed, or recreated on a annual basis. Our number one ally in the Middle East for several decades was Iran. <laughs> That's hilarious. It was. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it was with the Shah of Iran. And he actually, when he was going on his way out, he was saying, hey, you know, I know you don't like me and I'm kind of corrupt and I'm a little bit of a dictator. However, I'm not a problem. He goes, I'm a friend and I'm not a problem. He goes, yeah, I might do some money laundering, but these people are going to kill people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was kind of his pitch, but that didn't work too well. It's all about who is the bigger stick around here. The, the Taliban shot at us with our own weapons because we're the ones who gave it to them when we fought with them. So this does bring to political science. It's, just, it's actually a uh, social choice theory that uh, I, I find very important in just understanding the problem with democracy. And that is... Uh, Arrows and possibility theorem. Amazing. Anyway, well, you're going to have to explain this to all the listeners and including me because I'm not a political science whiz. So it was uh, done by a guy named Kenneth Arrow. He came up with the paradox. So it's an impossibility theorem stating that when the voters have three or more distinct options, there is no ranked voting electoral system that can convert those preferences into a community-wide ranking while also not violating fairness. Okay, so we have to break that down because there are two right. different pieces. So the idea is that if you want a very fair voting system, then there are several things that you need to have included. Okay. One of them is non-dictatorship. So one person can't be deciding for the group. Right? There's unrestricted domain. There's independence of irrelevant alternative, meaning that just because there's another alternative, it doesn't change my preference. So there's a whole list of these things that go into it, but it can be boiled down to this. If every voter prefers option A over option B, then the group will prefer option A over option B. If every voter's preference between A and B doesn't change, then other pairs, so B and C, A and D, 
will not change that ranking. And of course, the third one is that there is no dictator. So if you keep those three things in mind, we'll do an example. So all the people who voted for Donald Trump were never all Donald Trump supporters. Okay, that makes sense. And think of all the Hillary Clinton supporters. Nearly just as equal. Some of them are Republicans. They did not vote for Hillary Clinton in the primary. Mm -hmm. However, they preferred one alternative, say Jeb Bush, because that was the biggest source of those voters, or John Kasich. They would prefer them over Clinton. However, once you removed Kasich, then they went to Clinton, even though... Clinton was not their actual preferred. So the group's preferences changed once that option was removed. Okay. I would say that this tends to happen every political season. I mean, the stage of Democratic hopefuls started with too many to count. Right. And uh, think of all, you can see it in action every time somebody claims those third party voters would have swung the election. Oh, that was like a consistent, they say that every four years. Right. They would have changed the election in the favor. So you'll see that. It's also the argument for people to not vote third party. You hear it all the time. Like, oh, if you vote for third party, then that's a vote for insert the candidate you don't want to win. Right. Here's the thing. So this only covers anything that has to do with ranking things. So you could do things, there's what's called cardinal voting systems, where I can assign a rating, almost like a 2K game, where I can say, oh, well, you know, he's an 80% out of 100, right? But it's, that's different. This is where you have to say, okay, the group prefers Trump, then they prefer Clinton, then they prefer Bush, right? If you're saying that there's those three people are voted on and the group prefers that ordering, then any changes within alternatives or other information with choices will not affect that ordering. So then where does this go where there are people who are you know frustrated that Trump lost or that Biden won, but they dislike Biden or the prior election to that where people dislike Trump, but they disliked Clinton more? Where does that take you with this arrows and possibility theorem? So what it demonstrates is that you are going to have to be unfair in voting in order to get an outcome. So what kind of unfair? Right. So the author himself put it best. He was saying that most systems are not going to work badly all the time. This is not an argument that you will never have a system that works badly. What he's saying is all of them can work badly at times. So, for example, theoretically, you would want the most popular candidate who has the widest message to win. However, that's not always true in the United States, because if you think about it, where does the popular vote come from? higher population concentrations. So it becomes unfair because they start to have dictator-like abilities where a city dictates for the entire area. I mean, to be fair, New York City pretty much decides for the state. Right. And there are efficient methods of governing, like the old Roman Senate, where just citizens voted and they decided for everybody else. And then the Senate, whatever the Senate passed, that was what was law. This is very efficient more so than our current system where you had multiple houses and all that sort of thing. However, you can see how you begin to violate the non-dictatorship part. And I would encourage reading on this. There's a mathematical proof behind it. There's a whole lot of information that goes into this and we're condensing it down to like six minutes. But the end outcome is there is no way that you can have a voting system in a group 
that actually takes the preferences of the group every time in a fair way that doesn't cause some switching of the alternatives, that doesn't cause deals to be made, right? How many people are saying, well, you know, I don't like so-and-so, but that's better than so-and-so, so I'm going to vote for him, and then I'm going to vote this way over here, and I'm going to, you know, they play the odds that way. I mean, this is why we do polling. Right. So main thing that this comes up with is, so why would you even have voting? Why would you even want to do that? If there's no way for it to be fair, then how in the world could you have any sort of voting system? And if it's not going to ever be fair, then we're living in a completely unjust society, right? But it doesn't feel like that. Right. However, what it does is it recognizes that in life, not all choices come with complete fairness, even though that choice may be the best choice. So just to drag this back down into a more day-to-day example, if we have a group of 10 people and we all want to try to figure out what we want to do Friday night, four of us want to go bowling, three of us want to go skiing, and three of us want to go ice skating. What year are you living in? Okay. I know. Okay, continue. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, the group preference is obviously bowling. There's four of us, right? The, the four of us that want to do bowling, we're the biggest group. We are the majority. But you're not going to go bowling because of COVID, so... Right. <laughs> yes, so uh, this this is a non-COVID example. Although in New Hampshire, they did just drop their mask mandate, so... Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, so I guess over there, this example will apply. So just for Texas, Florida, New Hampshire, this example will work. But <laughs> <laughs> we're the biggest group, so we should win every time by voting, right? We are the group preference, is bowling. However, let's say that I'm the skiing guys, and I'm like, I don't want to be inside. Who goes bowling? This is ridiculous. Crackheads go bowling. Yeah. It's so weird. So what I do is I go over to the ice skating guys, and I go, look, we don't want to do the exact same thing, but you want to be outside, and I want to be outside. And if the three of us all vote together, we're going to be the group. So you vote for skiing this time, we'll vote for ice skating next time, and we'll get to do what we want to do, but not all the time. It won't happen all the time, right? So someone had to give up some of their preferences, what they wanted to do in order to get the a result that's better for them. I have a completely unrelated but totally relevant example of this with children that I'm going to tell because I want to tell it. So my sister, so I'm the youngest of three. My oldest sister always wanted to tell the friends that lived on our neighbor's street because this was the 90s where people actually hung out with people on the street. And she wanted to tell the neighbor kids and everybody else what to do and what we were going to play. And eventually the neighbor's kid's mom called my mother to tell her that Barbara always decides what to do. And Hannah wants to have a chance to be able to like play a game that she wants to play. So then Barbara was told this from my mother. And so the next time where they got together to play, Barbara said, okay, I'm going to decide what we're going to play first. And then Hannah's going to get to decide what we do. And then after that, this other person's going to get to decide what we're going to do. And in so doing so, she got to continue playing Lady Dictator while also allowing every person to feel like they mattered. And this is the dictator example of how you can maintain control while also allowing everybody to have a vote. The dictator one is the one that tends to get violated when we're talking about uh, any sort of political voting. That seems to be the one that gets broken the most. People tend to love fairness until they actually have to be fair. 
<laughs> exactly. And so you can make it work while still maintaining your power. Uh, we call it the presidency. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And, and just going back to that group project analogy that we started the show off with, most of us have found that the best group project we were ever in was when somebody led the group, right? When there was a leader and they were able to delegate and people kind of followed the lead and they trusted the guy and the way he was going. And it just made things more efficient. You knew what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. When you did it and somebody else didn't, you knew who the culprit was, right? They're the reason we're losing here. And then we were able to take that load and distribute it correctly. The leader was able to assess the strengths of each person and send them to the best parts of the assignment. That's still very true in real life. Dictators are efficient. Until they die. Until they die. And then it becomes very inefficient, and those inefficiencies come out within those first few months and up to a few years worth of time. Well, the thing is, dictators don't just mean Stalin, Adolf, Hitler. Dictatorships include monarchies. They include emperors. Okay. Single individuals who have control over the state, right, who set the agenda. That's why you have what England has what's called a constitutional monarchy. There's like a set of rules that the monarchy is supposed to like play by. Right. And they have very limited power at this point. They do. Although we did cover this before that parliament can do whatever the heck it wants. They just can't contradict something that is already in one of their documents. But parliament is like they sort of make their own decision <laughs> on whether or mm-hmm. not it contradicts it. So when you have a dictator, you know what that guy's all about. You know what he wants. He's got obvious goals. He's got clear mechanisms of power, right? Think about how confusing just federalism is, that there's multiple levels. You can be guilty on the state level, but not the federal level. You can be tried for a federal crime in your state. There's your community can have different rules than the next community over, but they can't have certain different rules because the state has those rules, but the state says that some communities can break those rules. There's all these different laws and regulations floating around. We have millions of regulations. Oh, yeah. Dictators, you don't have to deal with any of that. It's a good time. The king gets up there and he goes, we need enough food for everybody. That's what I'm going for. We're going to have the best military we can have. We make this much money as a country. So we're going to have this, 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 and this. And he puts in place his guys. And the guy understands my job is dependent on the king liking me. So I do this. (laughs) And my goal is to find out what he wants me to do. It becomes very efficient. So think about just the most recent Supreme Court judge. 30 or 40 days and everyone got up in arms. How rushed is that? That's terrible. They threw her in there. They stuffed her right through. There was no consideration. Have you ever had a dictator go, you know, man, he really rushed that decision. He took 30 or 40 days to decide what he wanted to do. He took a day. They already know who they want. (laughs) You just have to go all the way back to biblical times where you either raise the staff or you throw the staff down and, well, off with your head. Right. Like that is how quickly life and death decisions were made back then. That's probably how quickly they're made in North Korea. North Korea does not have an issue knowing what the society wants because the dictator told them what they wanted. Mm-hmm. And then they upheld that education. There's no polling of people in North Korea. They only have like 12 IP addresses or something. That's how little they're connected to the internet. And that's all government. But then the trade-off is, hey, the king is going to take care of all the decision-making. We're going to simply take care of the day-to-day 
And then we take a part of that to make sure that the king has all the stuff he needs to make good decisions mm-hmm. and to be a representation of our community. There you go. That's why they were in use for so long. That's why even the earliest groups of people, when you're hunter-gatherers and you're wandering around, they still had somebody who was a leader and he ran the show because you didn't have time to vote on, well, do we want to attack those people for food to live tomorrow or do we not want? There was no discussion of that. And that brings us to a third problem with governments. And this is kind of different than just the people aspect. Governments use force to make sure you're following the law. Always. That's the only reason you're following laws, because the government's job is to make it so that the law is followed. You give them a sword, which I guess the more modern would be a gun. You give them a gun. What happens if you don't pay your taxes? You go to jail. Who shows up to take you to jail? The police? Yeah. I've not been taken to jail, so I've not needed to be a part of this except in TV shows. And that is my speech on... If it sounds wrong, don't trust me. If you tell the police, no, if you tell the police no, what do they do? They say don't resist arrest. They say don't resist arrest, and uh, this is right about where the Black Lives Matter guys would be going. Oh, we know what happens next. So this is the issue when you have a government, and then you're voting on the government. You are voting on who gets to hold the gun. So what do you do? And contrary to popular opinion, it doesn't matter which president you put in office, the same government will come and put you to a gun. Right. There are certain things that it doesn't matter whether you are Republican or Democrat, they're coming. What you used to have for kings is he was one guy, right? So if the king kind of pissed off too many people, he couldn't do that, right? He needed to sort of understand, well, I can piss them off slightly, right? That was the balancing act. Mm Mm-hmm. But what happens when you're talking about how do I change the 80 million Biden voters' minds? Mm-hmm. This is the way I can do it. Oh, I figured it out. You give them free money. You give them free money. Sorry, that's a bad joke. No, no. But it, it does demonstrate the issue. When in any democratic system, the government is simply the majority. It's the 51%, which leaves the full 49% on the wrong end of the gun. Okay, I have to point out If that happened and that 49% on the other side of the gun was wiped out, I'm pretty sure the remaining 51% would segment into their subgroups and suddenly they wouldn't be united anymore. Now you just have the new 51% and the new 51% and the new 51%. Until you cut down in half every few years. And this is what people are talking about when they say I can invent anarchy because if there's no stability, then the biggest group will simply take over. So... Again, remember when states said gay marriage was illegal before the Supreme Court overturned it? It was the majority of states. Most states said, not here. Then the Supreme Court said, actually, that's a constant. Yeah, you can't ban it. Yeah, there's no way. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it was legal in all those states. Did those people change their mind? Definitely not. No, they did not change their mind. They just got more creative with how they say no. So my expectation is if a... A couple goes to a church and asks if they can be married in that place. It wouldn't shock me if pastors decided they couldn't say no, but they could say, well, we can't do it quickly. And those dates are full. And we recommend this other church for such and such reason. And the Masterpiece Cake Shop guys, I think on his third or fourth lawsuit, they're going after him. Well, I'm sure people are going to that cake shop just to start a lawsuit at this point. They are. They've even admitted they are. It's a thing. As sad as that is, it's a thing. But for example, why don't states simply ignore the Supreme Court? 
Why don't they just say, no, gay marriage isn't legal here. That's a nice opinion. And you said that, and that's cool. How does the Supreme Court enforce it? They don't have an army. What they do have, though, is a president and a Congress. They are incentivized to follow what the Supreme Court says. So they go to the state and they say, look, if you don't legalize this, you're not going to get your funding. We're going to put you up on charges. You're going to lose your political career. We're going to start taking stuff from you. It's going to be worse, right? They use the threat of force. And that's honestly a good thing, though. We're talking about it in the bad terms. But that's partially a good reason. Who do you call when somebody tries to do something like claim the title on your house, right? The government comes and enforces it. They make sure, right? There's notary, there's police. Somebody tried to move into my house. I can call the police. I don't need to resort to physical violence. I can simply call the police. This guy trying to live in my attic. That's happened before as well, recently. Right. So I can replace me needing to use a gun with the threat that the state may use it. And actually that can create a better civilization, which can sound odd. But that's actually the truth. Again, that's another fourth problem. We're going to touch on personal rights, such as personal property and other things in the future. We've got an episode coming out on that where we're just going to go into civil rights, human rights, privileges, just the differences between them. Mm-hmm. But there is a problem with who decides, right? So who decides your rights? The government? No. <laughs> well, do you want the government doing that? Would you like <laughs> Donald Trump deciding what rights you have? No, but not as much as the other guy, but still no. Right. Do you want Marjorie Taylor Greene deciding your rights? <laughs> there was this line. Amy Coney Barrett, the best thing that I recall her saying was that she could absolutely uphold the law and not make judgments based off of her personal opinions because nobody wants to live under the rule of Amy and her kids definitely don't want to live under the rule of Amy either. And I thought that was hilarious and totally in line with where we're going right now, which is that we don't live in a dictatorship and we don't actually want a singular individual deciding what our rights are. Of course you had people actually went, well, she said that because she wants it. Oh, they also said that she was a colonizer and that's why she adopted these children. They wouldn't have anything to do with kindness in her heart or anything like that. I think Angelina Jolie is in trouble next. So I have a right to my house. Now, what happens if a group of people decide they want my house? I mean, what if your house is too expensive and they don't want to buy it? Or if you live in California and somebody buys the house, but they decide to stay there and the law decides that they're pro people just staying in a house that they don't own and you can't kick them out for like 18 months. I'm not speaking obvious truth that's happened recently or anything. Right. It is an issue. Well, how do you get them out of there? Right. And again, if the person says no, what are they going to have to do eventually? They're going to have to go in there with the police. They're going to have to grab the guy and bring him out. And if the guy decides to fight back, they get to shoot him, right? It becomes violent. If you run into a situation where you have two black girls who are in Columbus and one pulls out a knife on the other person, what's a police officer to do? Tase someone or use a gun or not do anything at all? That's the discussion we're talking about right now. Who's deciding what the police can and can't do, what they're supposed to be doing? Who's making that decision? And in any sort of democratic society, which republics are part of, that I guess I'll go on a tangent here before going back. So you can say in our democracy, because we are a democratic style of government, Mm -hmm. but it, it is more accurate to say we are a republic. So sometimes what happens is people get confused because they'll hear someone say, oh, in a democracy. And it's like, but we're not an actual democracy. We are a republic, but we are a democratic form of government. But in a democratic form of government, we are deciding what we want those police to do. 
Mm-hmm. Now, do we also want Columbus PD deciding and Columbus voters deciding how to police in all our communities? No, they don't live here. <laughs> so we might say in a certain area, this works over here, but not over here. Right? A rural area and an urban area is going to be very different. A suburban area is going to be different than an urban area. These areas are going to be different, and there's going to be slightly different approaches behind things. Imagine if Christians all voted to ban Islam. You can scream all you want. Hey, I have the right to freedom of religion. I have the right to practice peacefully. But then they could say, not that religion, though. Because we decided democratically. It would be the same thing if we said, hey, we put on the ballot that everyone should get a vaccine passport. And then 51% of the population says yes to it. Well, we voted for it, so you have to do it. Or let's take it one step further. You have to get the vaccine by democratic vote. We all voted that you have to get it. You're not putting us at risk because we got the vaccine, but we're concerned for your safety. So we're going to force you to put it into your body because you don't have the right to self-bodily autonomy or anything. And even if they acknowledge that you have the right, they can just overrule you. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Stop them? There's more of them. Yeah, they'll just hold you down and put it into your body. Right. And, and I know people listening to this are going, this seems odd you're discussing this. What do you mean they're just going to make you do it? No one would do that. We're not talking about tomorrow. We're talking about in a theoretical sense, when you're trying to create a country and you're saying, okay, how do we represent 5 million people? Mm-hmm. Going back to the original title, How to Build a Government, Part 1 how to represent people. It takes a lot more. People think that you could just create a better system. As it turns out, very difficult to do. And that's one of the reasons that I brought up the impossibility theorem. It's this idea that this system's not going to be perfect just because, well, it's different. (laughs) And I'll also say that this applies to all forms of government and not just democracy or a public. It also applies to socialism. It's not going to be a perfect system. That's why we titled something Democratic Imperialism, and then we talked about just throwing words in front of it. You can have anarcho-communism. You can. Does it actually mean an anarchy that's also a controlled central government? No, you can't have those two things at the same time. So they're making trade-offs somewhere. Their preferences are getting ranked differently. That's what they're doing. But they're not actually anarchists who want communism. Because they can't have both. It's not possible. In the pure theoretical sense, they're making a trade-off somewhere. And their trade-off is there's no central government. It's a decentralized central government, which you can decide whether that works or not. So going back to the fourth problem, which was that your house looks nice. There was this tweet that went out, and it was from somebody who said, when I pay rent, I should own a part of the house or something. And this guy replied so savagely. He was like, yeah, that reminds me of the time where I went to McDonald's and I bought a Happy Meal and I suddenly was CEO. Matt Walsh said that. Oh, it's a great response. Thank you for that. Yeah, but it was fantastic because it brings up the point that people believe they have the right to whatever they think they have. And people end up having to go and remind them that that thing didn't belong to them. And that's why you don't own it. Never mind the fact that Being somebody who owns a house and offers housing to somebody costs a lot of money and it takes on a lot of risk because that person who's renting doesn't owe anyone anything if the roof collapses or if the walls fall in. All those things have to be covered by that rent. 
Now that is just a little segue of businesses cost money and things aren't free. But the reality is people still seem to think that they have the right to things that they don't have the right to. And if enough people say, that's mine, then you need to have the bigger group Mm -hmm. or you need to have a government that comes in and says, no, I'm the biggest group. I have the most guns. I have the most force. You're not going to get to a point where you can take down what the community wants. Mm -hmm. I definitely have friends that they haven't quite thought it through, but socialism kind of means voting to beat me up and take my wallet, even if it's immoral to do so. I think that's close to a a Ben Shapiro portion. In a a simple description, there was a meme that came out. It was socialism, which was the boot was pressing down on people in black and white. And then it was like democratic socialism. It was the same boot, but it was all in color. There was a rainbow on it. Right. There was also some recent memes about how there's a lot of Mexican people who are flooding the border and they have too many kids put into these facilities. And they were showing the difference between a name and a president and how we show that off is like, oh, now we put a rainbow outside of it and it's okay that they're at 300 percent capacity. Kids are still in cages, but no big deal. Biden's the president. It's fine. Well, uh, suggestion that it was white supremacy to bring it up. We're bringing up all these examples of people that can't communicate and say ridiculous things. Imagine if you could just get enough people to say whatever to support the ridiculous thing, right? There are millions of people that agree with these people. They could enforce their will. But the problem is, if you have 4 million people, you don't win elections. You have to get other people involved with you. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to start with our way forward here, where we've had all these problems. So what are some of the ways that us as Americans have found work against this? And just around the world, how republics have dealt this. So the first thing is a straight American invention. It's the idea that factions are going to occur, but instead of being the biggest faction, meaning the biggest group, or suppressing them by beating people down, which causes an uprising, so you get a cyclical change. The idea was, no, let people get into their groups of four million but then make it so that they got to work with all the other groups to get anything done. Because as we used in that example earlier, the ice skaters and the skiers could not get anything done, even though it's three people, it's substantial, but they could not get anything done until the two of them joined together and they had to meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. They had to say, we'll do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So part of the brilliant design of the American constitution was there's going to be a large group of people. And we'll just say that they're evangelical Christians. Evangelical Christians cannot win elections on their own. They can't. Barack Obama won without the evangelical Christians. Joe Biden just won without the evangelical Christians. (laughs) And to throw out another fact, we've gone from 70% of the country going to church and considering themselves evangelical Christians or religious down to mid-40s percent. Mid-40s, right. So mid-40s is important. That's still really strong, though. That's still millions of people. 40% of 300 million plus people is an insane amount of people. But they're only going to win local elections, not across the country elections. They have to work with other people. So now what are the Christians going to have to do? They're going to have to go and find other people and go, hey, I know you're not too big on the Christian thing. So what if we gave up some of the Christian stuff and you give up some of the secularism stuff? Mm Mm-hmm. And we'll put what we agree on together. It's already happening. There are so many people 
from a religious background that will say, you can have a lot of these social things. We are going to let you have things that have been decided on, like gay marriage. We're not going to give you a hard time on that. We're not going to encourage the Supreme Court to change it. Right. But we might not encourage people to do it in our churches, but we're not going to fight it in the court of law. So they went from where gay marriage is part of our platform. We don't stand for it. We're going to overturn it. Now they're just saying, how about we leave each other all alone? Mm-hmm. Because they've changed their message. So you can see in real time in just the last decade, the change because somebody went, I'm not the biggest group here anymore. What we started to say is, I don't care what you do in your bed. And that became a very effective headline for, we can still be okay with each other. Just don't make it my problem. But notice how that person's self-interest, because what happened is the group of Christians sat down and they said, so we can go and we can say the gay marriage thing's a problem, mm-hmm. but then we'll lose elections. Oh, this is also how we ended up with an actual group of conservative gay men, that it's actually a demographic that's started to being polled by elections. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is awesome. Right. So you can see that shift. You can see people start to be attracted by that. And because your evangelical conservative Christians have gone, well, you know what? As long as they don't make me change my beliefs in my church, then I can let them live next door to me. Just look at the change in the Democratic Party. Or it's a matter of saying like, okay, I am a man who's fairly gay, but I'm bisexual. I'm married to a woman. And I am very religious. I'm an evangelical Christian. But for people who have made different lifestyle decisions or they're gay and they want to be married to another man, okay, fine. We can disagree on that, but we do agree that the country has a massive debt problem. We agree that we need to make new age conservatism about reducing the national deficit. And on that level, we agree, and we should absolutely support candidates who believe this in the same way that we do. It's not about making Christianity great again. When we're talking about politics, it's about making sure we have a country where we can continue to practice our own religious preferences without persecution. Unlike Canada, where there's a church there where the police barricaded it in with guardrails to keep the people from meeting in their church because of COVID. These things are happening today in countries that we would not have ever imagined that there would be persecution. Like, it's crazy. It really is. It brings you back to the most important thing is that we actually maintain the rights that we do and do so in a courteous way towards others. That is exactly what I want to say next. The concept of negative rights is so important. And a positive right is we are going to be doing something for you, right? So that's a positive right. So a positive right would be uh, civil rights, right? The government is ensuring something for you. Negative right is a check against. Mm -hmm. So a negative right would be Second Amendment or the First Amendment. Those are negative rights because it is a limit on what the government can do to you. And the concept behind this is if you limit what the government is involved in, then the government cannot be used against you. The government is just being clubbed against the losing party for as long as the winning team has the club. And then when it changes hand, the other guy gets up and just clubs the other guy back with it. And each time they change hands, they make the club slightly bigger. It's like right now how they're trying to get rid of the filibusters so they can do more than just move the money pit around so they can move it from not just 51 votes, 50 plus the vice president, but get rid of the one that says they need 60 votes and have to actually work with the other side. You used to need 
60 votes to approve judges. Uh-huh. Now it's 51. And the Republicans used that so far that Trump got more judges in than any president ever. Right. It's funny how he managed to do that because it used to be that the consensus was in Congress that for judges, as long as they had the qualifications, they would get passed. But then it became partisan. People don't understand. Judges are not supposed to be partisan ever. They are not supposed to uphold political opinions ever. People are surprised when certain judges that they thought were supposed to be, quote, conservative, go with the liberal opinion. And I put that all in quotes. And I'm like, hey, guys, they're not partisan. They are people doing the best that they can. That doesn't mean they're going to fall one way or the other. What it means is that you can't just look at them and say, oh, look, there are X number of judges and two thirds of them are conservative. That's not how it works. Right. And it's really not supposed to work like that, but it's because the judiciary is being used as a way to club the other side. Right. That's why they'll say, oh, this law just came out. They're going to sue. Why? Because they're going to take the judiciary and they're going to use it to hit the legislative over the head with what they want. That's why court packing's on the table so that they can use the Supreme Court to strike down these state laws. So what's yep. the, what are the states going to do? They're going to ignore it. The only reason to stuff the court with more judges is to avoid actually doing something in a lawful way through Congress. It's the only reason. It's to eliminate the checks and balances. But it's just to make sure that you can stop what you want to stop and you can allow what you want to allow. The Obamacare thing, let's say that I was the biggest supporter of Obamacare and loved it. They rewrote the law just to make it work in the Supreme Court. John Roberts went in there and right. went, looks like tax to me. Congress can tax. Thanks, everybody. And you want to know what was going on around that time? They were starting to talk about, hey, maybe the court needs a few more judges. And Roberts yep. went, well, that's not good. You know what? Your law can pass. That's what FDR did to the Supreme Court in the 30s and 40s. The Supreme Court said, look, your New Deal stuff is unconstitutional. And FDR got up there and went, you know, I think there need to be 15 of you. And I got some guys who really like what I'm proposing because you guys are terrible. And they want the job. Yeah, and they want the job and you guys are going to be irrelevant. The court went, let's let him do what he wants on the programs and we'll just stick to like the big stuff. It's a good history lesson. Right. But how did we get there? Because imagine if FDR had lost the next election because of that. If people are gone, you want to do what to the Supreme Court? No, you can't be in charge. What do you think about people who believe that the Supreme Court shouldn't have lifetime elections? I think they're missing one of the fundamental reasons to have a judicial system. And actually, this is part one of our series. Part three is going to be the judiciary. And just like that, we're going to table that discussion for next time. <laughs> But just in short, they're missing the idea of if I have a lifetime appointment, what are you going to do to pressure me if you don't like me for a few minutes? Sure. Think about it this way. Imagine if you could replace your parents every time you didn't like them. Oh, my gosh. Right. I like my parents. There were stretches of time where I was like, these idiots, right? That was <laughs> especially growing up. And that's why there's a whole long court process for emancipation. Right. So you can't just ditch them. You can't just ditch them. But just to wrap it up, we fail as Americans. We have not understood the strengths of non-democratic because non-democratic institutions have strengths. King is very efficient. Bureaucracy is not efficient. Democracy is not efficient. It's not. The C and D students can make decisions, right? <laughs> I mean, how many times have you looked at somebody online going, they vote? 
the low information voter is very strong. I actually know somebody that admits they don't follow politics. And then they sat there telling somebody else that they were wrong about politics. They go, I don't really follow it, but you're wrong. Wow. And I look and I sit there going, how dare you? <laughs> that is, <laughs> no, you don't get to say, actually, I don't even want to see you near a polling place. There are weaknesses to democratic things, right? Those people get to vote. There are strengths to it. We have a stable country because the peaceful transition of power, getting people to work together, the amount of work that just goes into passing a bill is honestly insane because of what people actually have to go through just to get something passed is a mm -hmm. strength. Well, even just passing it. So we know that the House of Representatives just passed D.C. into statehood, which that means absolutely nothing because the Senate doesn't going to pass it. And that is another beauty. You have to convince essentially more than 50% of the states to go for it. Right, because it's a constitutional amendment for that to happen. Or they have to move the capital, which could get funny. If we're going to have D.C. as a state, I just want to see the hilariousness of them having to pick a new capital somewhere in Montana because they can fit it. Well, and the thing is, the more reliable way to handle it isn't just to give them statehood. It's to cede back the land that they have back to the states that they reside in. If the problem is representation and you want to have a vote towards a senator, I don't see why Maryland can't help you make that decision. Which is what it's supposed to do. But you can see the interplay here between non-democratic and democratic going, but there's the Senate is not a democratic institution. And the reason is how many times does the house flip? How many times does it just go back and forth? All the time. Imagine if the house of representatives made all the legislative decisions. Could you imagine the electoral cycle on a two year making all the decisions? Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine. It was just this speed of, we must pass all this stuff as fast as humanly possible would just increase so much, and they already have a hard time because they have to campaign every other year. Right, so they basically spend a year and then start up their campaign again. But you can see that there is a strength to that because the House allows for very up-to-date opinions on the population. True. So, for example, when the House flips, what they usually say is when a party unless wins— Unless you're Pelosi. <laughs> unless you're Pelosi, right. When, so, for example, in 2016, the Republicans owned all three branches— by 2018, they did not, mm -hmm. right? And that reflected that there was a shift in the population. Now, imagine if they were all 10-year terms. And I have to say, we can almost expect that this is what's going to happen when we reach the two-year mark of Biden being president because people, like the House already lost some seats from the Democrats, and that was on a year where they shouldn't have lost very many at all. Right. Nancy Pelosi almost didn't win the speaker election. She was like nine votes away from losing. Mm-hmm. That would have been amazing, by the way, because I don't care who you are. If you're a Democrat and you haven't considered how awful she is, you should. It's great. But so it does provide that update in popular opinion, because imagine if the same people who were in the House in 2010 were just now getting voted on. Mm hmm. Right. Just think of the opinion of the country. Remember the Tea Party? That was around. <laughs> and now you've got MAGA. Just the differences between those two groups. <sighs> and that's within a decade. Yeah. So... This is not a essay in democracy is failing. We're all doomed. <laughs> what I want everyone to take away from this, when you're thinking about how am I going to be represented? How are we going to protect people's rights? How, when we're in these conversations, it's not just about this sounds good or this will work because you're giving something up. You're 
in that impossibility theorem. You're breaking some rule of fairness in order to get what you want. And then you have to be careful that you're not transitioning from that fairness break into that human rights break. Because that gets easy real quick. Mm -hmm. If you make it a decentralized thing that the federal government doesn't do much and it's all local, then you could have super blue areas. You could have your Californias and everything. And then people who want to live in California, they can live in California. They can live in these places because you can have the differing opinions. And then Texas and California have to work together because they can't just blow each other off. So when you're saying, hey, let's get rid of the Electoral College or the Senate's not necessary or it should just be a popular voter, we should get rid of X, Y, and Z or the judges should just be voted on every five years or we should rotate judges in and out because I don't like the way they are right now. You have to be thinking about, well, hold on a second. How am I being represented? Because if I'm just being represented in a short-term way where this is what I want today, you might not want it tomorrow. So that's what the conversation here is. There's obviously a ton here. Can't do it in an hour. But take home with you. This might not be fair. I should probably listen to how the other guy feels it may not be fair. I should be thinking about what my new system would do. What would change if we did this? What role does this play? And not every role has to be big to be important. Small cogs in the machine can still make it work or make it break. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.